Hello, listeners! <laughs> Do you guys know we're on uh, places that you can follow us? Yes, social media. Almost all of them. You can find us on Instagram at Crane Kick Commentaries. Uh, we are on Twitter at Kick underscore Crane. <laughs> and, you know, and you can find us on YouTube just by searching Crane Kick Commentaries or Facebook just by searching Crane Kick Commentaries. Um, we also have a website, www.cranekickcommentaries.wordpress.com. We are also on several platforms, such as Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Podbean, many others, wherever you get your podcasts, except for Spotify. But we're working on it. You know, you won't find us on MySpace. Not yet, that is. Not yet. I don't know, does MySpace still exist? I think you can make a MySpace account. Alright, yeah, find us on AOL. <laughs> and, uh, and use that. What's your, uh, what's your MSN messenger tag? Yeah, what's my MSN Hello, and uh, welcome to Crane Kick Commentaries. As always, I am joined by my friend, Keaton Byer. Hello. And today, we are doing Once Upon a Time in the West. So I suppose we should get to it. Yeah, let's jump right in. Let's jump right in. Um, before anything, you know, because this, I just want to ask you a question. Can I ask you a question? Yeah, do it. Okay, so... Because this term is going to come up a lot. Um, as uh, you're an Italian man, right? You, you know. <laughs> uh, yeah, you could say that. I my name is Jake Del Mastro. If That's any an of you Italian guys were wondering, name. That's an Italian name. Uh, yeah. What's your social security number? Or your social uh... insurance number? Canadian. <laughs> um, but yeah, you're Italian. You've got you've got roots tracing back to the old country. I'm sure. Yep. <laughs> um, um, are you as as an Italian man, um, are you offended by the term spaghetti western? No, I mean, not really. Okay. Um, yeah. Because I've been thinking, I've got some alternatives here to pitch to you instead. Okay, just well, in what, case. what are the alternatives? I've, I've, I've heard that some people are offended, and like there okay. are alternative terms. Some people call it like uh, Italian western or Euro western. Mm-hmm. I believe the Japanese call it macaroni western. Oh, okay. <laughs> Subbing in the pasta, different kinds. Yeah. Get penne western. So I've just got a few alternatives here, really quickly. I'm just gonna pitch to you and see if you like any. Maybe we'll, you know, we'll stick with with one of them. Okay, yeah. So we're gonna go right for it. We're gonna open with mozzarella western. <laughs> How do you feel? Where'd about you that? get that one? Huh? Where'd you get that one? Oh, I made that one up. These are all oh, my okay, ideas. Yeah. yeah, no, these are all me. I see. These are all yeah, original. So how do you feel? More or less offensive? Um, it's about the same. Okay. I what think. about how about this? Do we have Fuzili Westerns? I was thinking about Fuzili. Fuzili yeah. Western. That would be a good one. What about what about spicy meatball western? <laughs> oh jeez. <laughs> okay, no, how about this one? This is a good one. How about Um Okay, what else we got? Thin Crust Western. Ooh, I like that one. That's one of my favorites. Yeah. Anyway. 
Pavarotti um, Western. Yeah. Um, Pavar- <laughs> yeah, so this, this movie is a, it's a spaghetti Western. It's a Italian Western. If thin you, crust if, Western. If you were wondering. Yeah, it's it's a thin crust Western. It's, <laughs> it's perfectly baked. Um, and as we were, as we were talking about earlier, it's, oh, it's, first of all, it's so long. Um, it's, yeah, it's, it's about what, like almost three hours? Just under three hours. Um, it's so long and it's so slow moving that it, and there's, and as you were saying, there's like, there's so many like almost superfluous details. Yeah, that... yeah, they spend a lot of time on things that like ultimately don't really matter. Exactly, it kind of just ends up seeming more complex than it actually is because of all that. Yeah, like the actual story is like pretty simple. Like, actually, I suppose we should get into that right yeah, now. Yeah, how would how would you sum it up, really? Like, uh, as quickly okay, as you so possibly could. As quickly as we possibly get. Okay, few, few uh, words as possible. How would you sum it up? Now, now I have a challenge. Okay. Yeah, you got a um, challenge. <laughs> okay, so there's some crazy guy with a harmonica, and he wants to kill somebody. <laughs> so uh, he runs into this uh, this woman who went to the west to go marry some guy, but he just died before she showed up, and um, turns out that he owned uh, some uh, land that was super valuable, and now. A bunch of criminals want to get their hands on it, and stuff happens. <laughs> oh, that was excellent. That was excellent. A bunch of stuff happens is the best yeah, way to. Yeah, a bunch of this. stuff happens regarding the land. Yeah. So yeah, that's uh, that. That's as succinctly as I think I can put it. <laughs> so, firstly, um, a lot of what we're going to talk about, uh, specifically in regards to production stories. But a lot of the stories come from a guy named Mickey Knox, who, as we will talk about, we'll talk about him a lot more later, but he, we'll talk about why he may or may not be the most uh, reliable of sources necessarily. Oh, okay. I'm not saying he isn't reliable, but he might not be the most reliable. Um, right. But he, he, he is, in fact, the, the main source for a lot of stuff. Um, and I think we were talking about just because the, the reason for that is probably because it's like, you know, it's a... a multi-international production, right? So he's one of the few English-speaking, like, American people to, like... Yeah, so he would have, uh, like, been the person to tell the stories to the American audience. Yeah, the, the stories that we would have heard, well, like, yeah. Um, but we'll, we'll get into all that. So before, before we do that, let's talk a bit about just um, the Western genre. Okay. A little bit. Um, are you a fan, generally? Uh, I generally like westerns. Yeah, actually, this is our this is our first western. Yeah, I think so. Interesting. Uh, so, yeah, I like westerns generally. You don't seem too warm on the topic. Well, um, I don't know. I I I find there's a lot of like, especially like I don't. I honestly don't really like like a lot of the old John Wayne like westerns. Right. Why is that? I find them like particularly boring. <laughs> Even slower than this movie, huh? Well, no, they're not like slow, but just like they're not that interesting. Right. The actual the actual plots are kind of boring. Yeah, exactly. Um Yeah. Yeah, totally. Well, I find I I like 
I love the Western genre, but it's definitely like not because necessarily of the quality of of the movies in the genre. Yeah, it's more just like okay. I the 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 more it's more about you know the romantic uh, fucking uh, frontier settlement. I don't know that sort of stuff. Like I I enjoy that, and whether or not it's historical, I like the I like the uh, the theater of it all. You know. Yeah, I can see that. But yeah, um I like it as a backdrop to like like but I would say like on the whole, I'm not actually the biggest fan of like the western genre. They're like popcorn, but in, it will, that's kind of that's kind of part of the history of a lot of them. They are kind of just popcorn uh fluff films a little bit. Right. Um so let's explore the background of the genre a little bit. Um, the idea of the Wild West, you know, uh, in American culture is timeless. Definitely. And there are tons of actual, like, real people who became, like, you know, myths. Mythologized, yeah, I guess. exactly. Yeah. Um, any that you can think of off the top of your head. It's like, there's so many, you know. There's a... Uh, uh, what, well, I don't know, like Wyatt Earp? Wyatt Earp, exactly, yeah. Wyatt yeah. Earp, uh, Billy the Kid, Pat Garrett, Jesse James, yeah. Pinkertons, Buffalo Bill. Butch Cassidy, Sundance Kid, John Wesley Harding. Wait, wait Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid was real? Yeah, both of them real dudes. <laughs> I, I didn't actually know that. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> they're. I'm not totally sure how accurate the film is to their real life stories, right. but, but yeah, they yeah. they're real guys, both of them. Okay. Right. But yeah, that's just like that's just a small selection. Just like you can go to like I think there's like a Wikipedia list that is just like a Western outlaws. Um, right okay and whatnot and it's just you can kind of click through it but the interesting about it is just all these people are real right um yeah and they're all like you know every one of those people we just mentioned has like some story uh based on them in some movie or something some comic, that happened you know? somewhere yeah yeah um and the other interesting thing about it is like all of them were active like vaguely between the years of like 1870 to like 1900 1910 at the absolute latest right so basically from the end of the civil war to the turn of the century right exactly and this these like 30 max 40 years like this is the wild west right this is that's it that's where all these legends come from that that time period sometimes you know it's kind of thought of as this like really long you know massive portion in american history but it's really this right yeah well i mean i think like obviously it it was kind of time bounded because like the whole thing about the wild west was it was like the frontier right people were settling in and like uh ex- like expanding yeah, it's like right the fringes of society so like obviously as people like move out there and um you know expand they're obviously eventually it's not going to be the frontier anymore yeah exactly right um and yeah, that so that thirty and forty years is like one of the most fetishized periods of American history. Yeah, and I mean it's not it's not like it's specifically like a very small portion of America too. What do you mean? Well, I mean like where would you say the West like the line is? I mean obviously it changes throughout. Well, history, yeah, like... and especially in terms of like Western genres, it's like it, it ranges anywhere from like you know anywhere west of Kansas basically, but like yeah. Um, so, predominantly it's like you know the the john ford um who's like the one of the most famous uh early 
Like he did all those John Wayne films that you hate. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he uh, filmed, as was some of this film we'll get into, is filmed in Monument Valley, which is like, so that's like kind of the iconic setting. Very uh, classic backdrop, iconic. So that's like, that's like uh, the border of Arizona and Utah. So I think that mm. circle all the way to, you know, and then the California area also has its own brand of West. As does like right. you know Washington State, even as you know they have like winter snow west films or whatever it's called. Uh, northern white west. Okay, because I mean, there's also the northern genre. The northern. Yeah, genre? are you familiar with that? Is it just exactly what it sounds uh, like? Well, it's it's kind of like um, it's like westerns, but it's like uh, in Canada. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> so it's uh, there were there were quite a few of them actually for a while. Uh, let me see if That's I can spectacular. give you some examples. That's something I like, you know, kind of assume would exist, but have never really looked into very much. I mean, most of these movies were like, you know, B movies in like the 40s and 50s. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I kind of figured definitely wouldn't be like m- major yeah. motion pictures. But it, it, it was definitely <laughs> like a trope. Uh, you know, you had uh, you had Mounties and stuff and. Uh, they were they were all in like the Yukon or like the Klondike. As much as that is now probably going to become my new favorite genre of films, yeah. uh, this this isn't an episode specifically about westerns and western subgenres broadly. So so we got to skim over it because we're going to get sucked in because I definitely got sucked in when I was. <laughs> well, this is about a specific western subgenre. Yeah, exactly. So we got we're covering the background that's necessary for this film. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, I'd I'd like to see all the spaghetti northerns. Well, <laughs> you don't that's a rabbit hole we shouldn't go down because now that's again how good would that be yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> i mean they have they have the alps in italy they could film it there yeah they totally could do it <laughs> it would be totally you know it would be great yeah um the <laughs> so you got me see you got me thinking about this now <clears throat> um the first film <laughs> The first film generally accepted to be a Western um, is uh, Thomas Edison, that piece of fucking shit. Um, Wait, why is Thomas production? Edison specifically a piece of shit? I mean, I know he's an asshole, but like... He's a huge asshole. I don't know. I got a lot of beef with Thomas Edison that I don't think we should get into right now. Okay. We <laughs> Maybe we could get into that in a different <laughs> different podcast. There's, there's reason to have beef with it. Okay. Um, he he made a film. He produced a film. His production company. He probably had nothing to do with it. The film was called The Great Train Robbery. Okay. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen it. I don't know if it was that film, but I think that was one of the earliest films to actually have editing in it. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. Whereas, like, it wasn't just you know they set up a camera and the whole thing was in the static shot. In yeah, yeah in one shot. I could be wrong. That's on interesting. That, right? I didn't know that. But yeah, that wasn't like that was. That was just kind of the first you could point to it, and that would maybe be considered the first Western. But it wasn't really that much in the in the in the you know national consciousness or anything. Yeah, I I think the movie was like what like five minutes. Yeah, it wasn't very long. I don't remember exactly. Um, but so for much of the earliest twenty early twentieth century, um, Western genre existed mostly in the form of like uh like pulp style comics and dime magazines. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, based on the exploits of like all the people we were talking about earlier, 
the legends of the West. Yeah, some of the names are like Wild West Weekly, Real Western, Jesse James Stories, Double Action Western. Not the most creative. Yeah. <laughs> um, Much like the stories but... in them. <laughs> exactly. Well, that's, that's just the thing is because like the popularity of these kind of like, you know, cheap uh, pulp comics, um, they kind of led Hollywood as, you know, the Hollywood boom kind of got rolling. Mm. Um, they began to pr- produce like a, just a bunch of low budget cookie cutter, as you, you say, shitty Western films. Yeah. Um, that kind of culminated in, in 1939 when your favorite director, John Ford, okay. um, directed the film Stagecoach, right. which you may or may not be familiar with. I've seen it. Yeah. That, well, so then, you know, who the star of that film, John Wayne, that's the film that like totally made John Wayne a fucking legend. Mm, yeah. An icon. But, you know, I mean, how would you describe the difference between between these films and uh, and like a, a spaghetti western? Um, hmm. So, what makes a spaghetti western different from like the classic, like uh, you know, American? Yeah. What western? are what, what are some of the things? Uh, well, would... I mean, I would definitely say they were generally lower budget. Um, really. Yeah. Uh, that's the first, well, at least the early ones were, but, uh, this movie, I would say is an exception to that. Well, this movie, I think we'll get a lot into why this movie is like debatably like it's cause it's obviously at the very end of the spaghetti Western. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Era. So we'll, we'll get into why this movie is unique, but like, so yeah, so generally they were lower budget. They tended to be a little bit darker. Uh, yeah, they, they tended yeah. to be like a little bit more sort of like almost exploitation. <laughs> what do you mean? Well. You know, they uh, they might have, like, um, content in them that would be uncouth for an American audience. Right. They kind of, yeah. yeah, I see what you mean. Um, yeah, because, like, often the stories that were, that were in, like, the pre-Spaghetti Westerns, um, American Westerns, were, like, they were pretty black and white, literally. Um, well, they were pretty black and white, you know, good versus evil, law versus outlaw. Mm kind of direct you know um good versus bad stories um and they were violent sort of but they weren't necessarily like gritty like yeah like, exactly like um, you know the gunfights were all like you know kind of like the extent of it is someone grabs their chest and falls exactly over and that's kind that of that would be it's like there would probably rarely be a lot of blood and stuff like that it's like the world war the world war ii films that were like made kind of early on where, like, there's, like, not actually any real... There's not even any, like, blood. Like, there's nothing to... Guys just, like, grab at their chest and fall over. Um, but, yeah, also these, these, these American... I mean, not that the Spaghetti Westerns weren't, but the American ones were also generally just racist as fuck. Yeah. Um, as, again, the Spaghetti Western ones were as well. Yeah. But... Well, actually, that's a thing that I, I noticed that I haven't seen so much in the, uh, in the Spaghetti Westerns. Like, uh, the spaghetti westerns, from what I've seen, they rarely in- involve like Native Americans. Yeah, I was thinking that as well, and I wonder why that is. Like, do you think it has something to do with just they just don't really have as much of a reference point to? I, I would think that's what it is. And we'll get into more the like the like um, uh, the effects that the uh, 
not being American uh, had on the film. Yeah, but, we'll get but I also think later. it's uh, maybe like just the Italian audience was more interested in sort of like the, uh, um, the gangster kind of uh, yeah right dynamics yeah. rather than sort of like the cowboys versus Indians kind of thing. And that yeah, and that's again exactly that's the other thing is like the American films were like you know pretty staunchly nationalistic and like. Like they were yeah. made for an American audience, and and, and the main like, character was often like some kind of hero, like sheriff or something like that. Exactly, he's usually a lawman. Yeah, uh, very rarely um, were the outlaws actually the star of the film. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, like I don't think the Italians like particularly cared about like you know, oh you know, exploring the frontier and you know expanding America. Yeah, exactly. You know. Yeah, they were they were making it. They they knew they were making it for an international audience. Yeah. Um. So they didn't really care as much about being like oh, America. Exactly. Whatever. <laughs> um. So yeah, that kind of brings us to Sergio Leone. Can you per, can you pronounce all the Italian names that we're gonna do here? Like, because I'm not gonna be I'm not very good at it. Ser, Ser, Sergio Leone. Ser, <laughs> Sergio Leone. Sergio. I don't know. Um. Yeah, maybe it'd be like Sergio. Sergio Leone. Leone. Because there's a lot more of Italian names that you're gonna have to read later on as well. Okay, well, <laughs> that's the easiest one too. I'll I'll, I'll do my best. <laughs> um, then came Sergio Leone and uh, spaghetti westerns. Uh, yeah, and yeah, I would say at this point, like it's it's now these days, it's hard to watch a western that hasn't been influenced, an American western that hasn't been influenced by the spaghetti westerns. Oh yeah, like they they just ate it up. Exactly. Yeah. So what? What did Sergio Leone do to uh, to bring spaghetti westerns to the forefront? Well, he made he made a fistful of dollars. Did he <laughs> really make a fistful of dollars? Uh, <laughs> or did somebody else do that? He repackaged a fistful of dollars um, from a film, a <laughs> Japanese film. Okay. <laughs> So, there's a Japanese film called Yojimbo, I believe it's pronounced. Um, I, I can't help you there. Yo, I think it's Yojimbo. Um, it's, I think it's, it's Yojimbo a Japanese too, but... samurai film um, by legendary Japanese absolute, absolute legend, legend Ikura, Ikura Kurosawa. Kurosawa. Um, and that film, I believe, Yojimbo was 1961. Um, but basically... Yeah, this uh, a fistful of dollars, Sergio Leone's first western. Um, I believe it's his like second or third film overall. Um, but yeah, uh, it's fairly early, I guess. Yeah, um, it's it's basically a shot for shot remake of this other of this of Yojimbo, like shot for shot. Yeah, direct. It's it's remake. pretty close, and it's so weird how blatantly it is. like like they just they just did it. They like uh, apparently several people who knew knew uh, Sergio Leone at the time. They all tell like the same story that like uh, he saw the film with a couple of people, and basically he was like, "Hey, that would that would make a great western." So so he just did, and then he just made it. <laughs> yeah, I mean you know he's not the. Uh, he's not the only person to rip off a of Kurosawa. No, who else? I mean, you know, most famously George Lucas with Star Wars. <laughs> Which film did he rip off for Star Wars? <laughs> the Hidden Fortress. 
Yeah, look look it up. Yeah, well, okay, so <laughs> that's weird because because the um production company, Toho Films. Toho, yeah, yeah. Famous for making all the Godzilla movies. Right, exactly. Yeah. They hit they represented Akira Akira uh, Kurosawa. And they sued him, obviously. Um, and they won, obviously, because again it's a shot for shot <laughs> remake. <laughs> yeah. And um they won not only they won the rights to the film in Asia entirely, um, mm-hmm. as well as fifteen percent of international sales. Uh I would say that's pretty good. So that's huge. Yeah. <laughs> like that's they made a lot of money off that film, as they should have. And as yeah. uh Kurosawa should have. Because like we I can't overstate it's, it's the same it's movie. The same it's just movie. Yeah. I mean, I wonder if you could like take the dub from the Fistful of Dollars and put it on uh Yushimo and if the lines would line up. <laughs> I'm sure I'm sure someone's tried. Yeah. Um I I've seen in fact like most of Leone's films, or at least most of the Dollar trilogy. Um people have drawn references to other of Kurosawa's works. So it's Yeah, like, like he's heavily influenced by Kurosawa. Yeah. And like Visually, especially, I would say. Oh, yeah, definitely, definitely, yeah. Like, because there's this one scene in this movie, actually, where uh, uh, right after, like, the family in the beginning gets completely murdered. The McBains? The McBains, yeah, when when they get all murdered, uh, Frank's gang kind of comes out of the bush, and they're all standing in kind yeah, of, like, like this, emerge, this yeah. like, formation. Yeah, it's a really great scene. And, and it, it looks amazing. But, like, that's, like, a very kind of Kurosawa kind of shot. Yeah, totally. Where where you would have, like, people arranged in, like, that specific, like, kind yeah, of way. Yeah, Like, kind of, um, like, kind of inorganically standing. Yeah, absolutely. Like, it's very sort of aesthetic. Like, it's, 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 it's. Yeah. It's only, it's, it's only there to make the the scene look cool you know yeah yeah exactly and it succeeds it does it's it's really it's really great so um after the success of the trilogy obviously all those movies culminating in the good the bad and the ugly um were enormously successful um yeah launching colonies with career yeah exactly that's why we have that lovable rascal chair talking to rascal (laughs) Uh, so, but after that, yeah, Sergio Leone, it seems he wanted to expand beyond Westerns a little bit. Yeah, I mean, that's understandable. Um, yeah. Um, and he had his mind, I, th- this is hard to corroborate, but allegedly right. he had, he, at this time, he already, um, had his mind set on making a film based off of the novel, The Hoods. Okay. Um, which would obviously go on to become the basis for his film Once Upon a Time in America. Okay. Um, but I couldn't really corroborate that. But apparently, so they say, it was already in the works back then. Um, there was also a little bit of speculation in the press at the time that he was going to remake, uh, do a remake of Gone with the Wind. Oh, yeah? Um, that would be strange. That would be interesting, yeah. yeah. And apparently because he was like upset at how they had uh, deviated from the novel. Oh, in the original film. And he wanted to make one. 
in the original film, and he wanted to make it a little bit more accurate to the novel. Apparently, this is again alleged. Right. right. Well, I mean, he's really good at copying things. So I think <laughs> he'd be able to do that. <laughs> um, in the end, though, it seems he was offered a, a deal that he could not refuse. Yeah. Um, from from Paramount Pictures. And so, what was that deal? Wow, that's the thing. I couldn't really find any information about it. It's just like it's a really. I'll get into a little bit more of that. Like Mickey Knox talks about yeah. it a little bit, and we'll talk when we talk about Mickey Knox. Well, so that that was for this movie. For this movie, sorry, yeah. Yeah, that was for, for How the West yeah. One, yeah. No, for Once Upon a Time in the West. Sorry, had Once Upon a Time in the West, not to be confused <laughs> with the other movie, How the West Was One. Yeah, different movie. Different movie. Also, um, long title Western. Yeah, how long is that movie? Is really long too. Yeah, but things actually happen in that movie. <laughs> that movie's like five movies in one. It's also the widest movie, as well as the longest movie I've ever seen. <laughs> like, because it originally they uh, they shot it to be in to be shown in what's called Cinerama, which is like this like wraparound screen, sort of like the precursor of IMAX, but like in the fifties. Uh, but so yeah, it, it had like this right, ridiculously yeah, yeah. wide yeah. aspect ratio. But I mean, I digress because we're not talking about that movie. <laughs> <laughs> that yeah, sorry that that, that kind of raises the debate: the fact that they got this deal with Paramount Pictures. They, this is where the kind of the embers of the debate um, of whether or not this is a true spaghetti western right begin to burn. So, from what I read, basically the the part of the deal that Sergio Leone couldn't refuse was that he got to work with uh, famous American actor Henry Fonda. Yeah. Yes. And but there that's the thing is there are conflicting stories as to how Hen- how and why Henry Fonda became involved. Oh, okay. And I couldn't really pin any one story down, so we'll include all of them. So what what are the uh competing hypotheses well okay so one and again this is not this is not like cited on wikipedia just says that that like what you just said i think it says something along those lines where um they offered him the chance to work with henry fonda who he liked but yeah there wasn't i mean really, from what i understand actually, he really liked him yeah, he, loved he wanted he wanted him instead of Clint Eastwood for all those other films. He just couldn't afford. Yeah, exactly. Him. Like he really liked yeah. him. Um, so, but yeah. So, for what I gather, like this is kind of like you know, some American studios saw that like you know these spaghetti western movies he made were really really popular. So they were like, okay, why don't you come make one of those movies for us, and then we'll we'll hook you up with Henry Fonda and he could be in your movie. That that seems to be it, but also as we'll talk about again, uh, the guy we'll talk about, um, Mickey Knox. Yeah, he, he claims, as he would, he claims that it was his version of the script that that convinced uh, Fonda to to join the cast. Apparently, he didn't like. Well, Mickey says he didn't like the script until he read um, Mick, Mickey's version. Right. Well, I assume the other versions were in Italian, so I don't know how. He well, should. I'm sure there was like a. Pre- I'm sure there was like a preliminary, like uh, okay, a yeah, rough yeah. translation that they sent to to the actors mm-hmm. and like the studio. That wasn't like a stylized translation. It was just like a rough. 
I I I I mean I maybe they had maybe that he was like you know I'm interested in it but I'll have to read the script or whatever originally. Yeah. yeah. I mean yeah, it's probably a mixture as always. It's probably a mixture of yeah. all of them. Um, but yeah, that's about whether or not it's truly a spaghetti western. I think the actual definition of spaghetti western is so vague that yeah so i mean like the fact that it was directed by an this italian was directed by an italian and it was filmed in europe so it's like it is kind of a spaghetti western but then like a lot of the actors in this movie are american and it was kind of like um i guess the the production uh like the budget behind it was from an american company and everything so yeah it was kind of like uh what united artists or whatever uh was the production it was the uh, studio basically said like you know sergio Leone, why don't you come make this movie for us yeah one thing that makes this sort of like one of the obvious things that is like different uh from many spaghetti westerns is like you know the main character in this movie is not like a bandit or an outlaw or whatever it's just some lady from or New Orleans, who comes to the West yeah, to well, go that's see? Yeah, the thing is, the main character is kind of ill-defined. Is it? Is it her? I, I would say Jill is the main character in this movie. Is Jill? Yeah, you'd say yeah. that. Yeah, I mean, you might be able to say like Harmonica is, but I don't think he has enough lines. Yeah, that's true. I mean, well, apparently in the initial uh, in the script, he had a lot more lines, but in the way they edited it, it kind of turned into him being yeah, because he almost doesn't quiet. talk. Yeah, almost. I don't. He barely has any lines. Um, he's the. F- I mean, like you do see him before you see Jill in the movie. Yeah, he's the first. Well, he's not the first character you're introduced. Yeah, to. Yeah, the first people you see are uh, are in the opening. The like allegedly the longest opening credit sequence in film. Yeah. Um, it's like 15 minutes or something. Yeah. So you get introduced to a whole bunch of these guys right off the bat, and they all die. And then you then you meet Harmonica. And then you meet a whole bunch of people who proceed to die. And then you meet Jill. It's true. Every person new person you meet is like interspersed with like at least A bunch of people dying yeah. who like Yeah, some of them are important to the plot. Like the McBains, but the other people are not. Yeah, it and it gets a little confusing. Yeah. Um, but the script was written with are you ready to help help me with some italian names here sure sergio leone uh he wrote the script with the help of two future italian directors uh dario argento and uh bernardo bertolucci it, the script was uh you what number did you get you you heard i heard like, like 470, 470 something pages. i could be wrong i heard like 420 so between 420 and 470 yeah so quite quite a few pages just for uh there's a kind of a rule of thumb uh for script writing that like what a page is supposed to be like a minute or something like that something like that yeah, yeah. Right. um apparently of 420 pages of of script there's only 14 pages of dialogue really that doesn't surprise me at all so that's like what like it's going to be like 14 minutes of speaking <laughs> the entire like <laughs> movie <laughs> and yeah so like you you can see like this movie ended up being like almost three hours long but like the script was probably 
like originally written to be even longer. Oh, definitely, yeah. Um, like from what I could tell, like Sergio Leone was actually trying to rein himself in, really, on this movie because he had uh, all his uh, all the the dollar trilogy and stuff like that had been cut. Uh, afterwards because they were too long when he originally shot them <laughs> yeah makes sense. and so he wanted to avoid getting it cut again I so see. he wanted to make it shorter so that it, they wouldn't have to cut out stuff right well you really fucked that up <laughs> well yeah he fucked that up real bad <laughs> made a fucking three-hour movie yeah that still had shit it still had shit cut from it, from it. American yeah release. <laughs> 10 minutes cut from it in the american release <laughs> Uh, like, but yes, but so much because because there's so little dialogue actually written down. So much of that script is just like tone and these and like you know cinematography ideas yeah. and like shot direction and you yeah, know exactly. stage direction and shit like that. Like, like you know the scene in the bar where like um, Cheyenne confronts Armonica and he like yeah. he like slides the lamp over to him on the on the line. Mm-hmm. I was in the script. Yeah. Just like shit like that. So it's like all in the script. Yeah, yeah. Details like that. Wait, wait. So just curious, when you were watching the movie, which version did you watch? Um, so I watched the international version. Yeah. When me it was too. initially in its run, like in Canada, do you think it would have been the international version or the American version? I wonder. We would have had the American version. I I assume yeah. we would have had I, the I American suspect, version. But... It's probably like similar yeah. distribution like chains but i'm just speculating i don't really fucking know it could have been the international version in canada yeah i wonder but i mean regardless it would have been interesting we actually to weren't alive at the time and so we saw it now when we watched the international version because it's probably better <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah um like yeah the u.s version was like 10 minutes shorter and they cut a few scenes like uh i don't remember right. exactly like there's a shaving scene or something that they cut anyway like when they were when they were writing the script. Wait, wait, in, don't they cut, um, sorry, spoilers, but don't they cut, uh. This whole thing is spoilers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Actually, I think we, we established that. Don't, you're going to get spoilers if you're watching this. So you're listening to yeah, this. Listening, but, uh, didn't yeah. they cut, uh, Cheyenne's death at the end? Maybe. I don't think, no, I thought, I thought they just cut, like, how he died or, or something about his death okay. scene. I didn't think they actually cut him dying from right. the film. I mean, the whole Cheyenne death was very confusing for me. How so? Well, because, like, when he took the bullet, that would have had to have been so long ago in the movie at that point. How was he having no problems up until right then? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but you just kind of, like, they really draw that out. Oh, yeah, I got shot, like, two hours ago. <laughs> <laughs> and I've been fine until right now. Yeah. script uh leone Berd- bertolucci and argentino argento Arge- Ar- argento argento um they were apparently like they watched a bunch a bunch of westerns and people who have like you know watched this film have drawn um uh, comparisons to and references to tons of other western movies um yeah 
like the opening scene is a lot like High Noon, um, except longer. Except longer, <laughs> yeah. Which we'll talk about a little bit later. High Noon, interesting film. Um, so the most obvious influence um, is yeah. a movie called The Iron Horse and a movie called Johnny Guitar. And both those 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 um, movies have similar plots. Like uh, I think the Iron Horse is like a female protagonist, and obviously it's about a train line, right? Um, and then Johnny Guitar is about like a musical gun uh, gunman who like plays a guitar. It's like basically you know the same character as Harmonica, right. and he even <laughs> had like Johnny Guitar even has lines like or people say to Johnny Guitar in the movie they say Can you play and Can you dance? Just like you know lines that are directly recycled right. yeah, into yeah, this yeah, film. Yeah. Um, yeah. so this is really interesting I read that this like Sergio Leone has actually been compared to Quentin Tarantino <laughs> I, I can see it it's pretty obvious to me <laughs> yeah because he just does he just did to these old films what Quentin Tarantino does to his films <laughs> yeah like just like, directly like referencing and just basically stealing shit I mean I can't think of a a movie that like. Well, actually, never mind. I was gonna say I I, I can't think of a movie that um that Quentin Tarantino did that was basically another movie. But then again, like uh, isn't Reservoir Dogs like a copy of a Japanese movie? Let me double check this. I mean, yeah, that's that would be good to know. It's a copy of a uh, 1987 Hong Kong movie called City on Fire. So it is a copy. <laughs> Reservoir Dogs is a copy of another film. Um, so I guess now it's time to actually, we've mentioned his name a bunch of times. We can go into a little bit more detail about a guy named Mickey Knox. Yeah, okay. Yeah, Tell us about Mickey. Uh, well, he started off working, he was an actor in like the 40s and 50s. He was in dozens of films. Um, Any westerns? I don't think so. Okay. Um, um, in the 1950s, I believe, or at least early 60s, maybe, um, he ran foul of uh, the American government, specifically a man uh, by the name of McCarthy. Oh, okay, so uh, he was accused <laughs> of, of maybe being a little bit red. He was, yeah, he was a little blush. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, allegedly. Allegedly. And he was blacklisted and was kicked out of America. Okay. So presumably, maybe that's... Did he end up in Italy or something? And uh... Yeah, exactly. That's kind of how we got into this, into, this, into this scene. But just before we get there, like, I'm sure you're familiar with what happened to uh, the screenwriter Carl Foreman. Yeah. Who, who wrote High Noon, as we mentioned earlier. Yeah. Same thing, right? Well, yeah, I think High Noon was one of those uh, movies that was, like, specifically criticized uh, for being, like, communist. Yeah, yeah, it was allegedly an allegory for yeah. blacklisting in America. I forget the plot. I, I haven't seen it in a couple of years now, but but it was Apparently, much... High Noon is, is John Wayne's most hated film. Yeah, well, he, he was offered the role. Yeah. And he turned it down because he was like, he saw through it and was very much, he was like pro blacklisting, very anti. Yeah, he was. Dude. Yeah. John Wayne was like, 
the most <laughs> like right wing, like anti communist, like uh yeah, yeah. Um he called he called so he High Noon the film. most un American thing I've ever seen in my whole life. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Yeah. What a baby. But anyway, yeah, Mickey Knox was was uh, blacklisted, right? And he moved to Europe, um, where he spent you know last bit of the '60s, most of the '70s. Uh, he worked as a screenwriter and translator uh, in Europe, mostly, most famously though. Um, and why we're talking about him is he did the uh, English translations for uh, the Good, Bad, and the Ugly script and this film, Once Upon a Time in the West. Um, and on top of this, during during the filming of Once Upon a Time in the West, he was uh, he served as Sergio Leone's um, on-set translator. Mm. And he said at the time, Sergio could barely speak a word of English, so he was probably pretty busy. <laughs> I can't imagine Sergio Leone making a hell of a lot of effort to be. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I can't. I can't imagine him making a hell of a lot of effort about anything except, like you know filming movies and even that yeah that's all he all he cares about <laughs> um did you do you want to read uh the quote from from mickey knox just kind of describing his job and he touches a little bit about sergio leone as a director yeah so um well, mickey knox basically said like i did all the dialogue united artists came to me and said this is America. Everything has to be in perfect sync. I mean, with the lips. That wasn't an easy job for that picture. Sergio Leone didn't give a damn about the sound because all of his <laughs> films were being dubbed after the pictures were finished anyway. Many times, actor, uh, many different actors were doing the dialogue part. So this gave him the freedom to shoot a picture without worrying about the sound, meaning visually he could do anything he wanted. In fact, he did. <laughs> so, like, I think we kind of need to get into that a bit because it's like, um, yeah. if you've ever, like, seen Italian TV or, like, watched Italian movies, like, a lot of their movies are dubbed and they dub everything they watch. So, like, uh, the Italian audience is very used to, like, seeing, you know, dubbed movies and you know, not necessarily having the sound line up with the uh, voice that much. Yeah, so... So with the, the lips with that the much? Lips. So their uh, standards, what you're trying to say there, is their standards were... Uh, yeah, so the, their standards ten tended to be a lot lower on that, I would think. Right. Yeah. It, poor dubs are really uh, jarring sometimes. Yeah. And I mean, actually, so this movie generally does it pretty well i would say it's much better than in uh good the bad and the ugly or the dollars trilogy or fistful of dollars or whatever yeah pretty well so but i i think it's it's kind of strange like kind of strange to think about that like on the set there were people that were filming the same scene and they were each speaking different languages yeah well that's what i was reading is like it's super like interesting like the way it worked because they knew it was going to be dubbed into as we were saying earlier because it was such like a, a, a an international production and they knew it was going to be dubbed into so many languages i think just like the actors just spoke the language that they spoke so like 
Italian exactly. Directors. Well, I mean, you're not going to have Henry Fonda like speaking Italian on set for the Italian version because he doesn't speak it, right? It's like it's really weird. And then they just like you know dub whatever they need to dub for whichever release. It's just, it's interesting. Such a weird way to make yeah, a movie. Yeah, and you can kind of tell who the Italian actors are because <laughs> their their vo- their voices don't line up as well. No, they do not. So, like, the character of Morton, specifically, I would say, like, you can see when he's talking, he, I think he is the most out of sync in, uh, Oh, definitely, I, I would agree, say. yeah. Does that give him a certain seal of approval? What, uh, what seal of approval would, would you, or what are you talking about? Well, I think he would. Gets an award. So, does he have the worst accent? Don't point that thing at me! I think so, I think he wins he wins the award so i i'm actually not sure uh if 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 when they did redub it that it was the same actor i I don't imagine that it was because um i think even the english actors like they dubbed it anyway yeah totally yeah so like there's no onset audio in this thing. I, I I I suspect they weren't even recording onset audio. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, you mean like even the the like Henry Flanda dubbed his lines after the fact as well. His English lines. Yeah, he yeah, dubbed yeah. his lines in English over top of himself speaking English. Which yeah, is yeah, like yeah. it's a pretty common practice these days with ADR and stuff, but yeah, I think more common than 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 a lot of people. Uh, yeah, I I, I would I don't mean I don't want to say like, you know, we're we have inside knowledge or anything, but we don't. <laughs> we don't. Yeah, we but really um, it's yeah, it's but... it's fairly widespread. So I mean, I think one of the reasons, obviously, that yeah, they wouldn't have been recording audio on set was because they were actually playing the soundtrack on set, right? Yeah, so I would say that Sergio Lenny kind of had a... Uh, what did you just call him? Sergio Lenny? Leone. Sergio Leone. 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 Sergio Leone. Go on. <laughs> um, I think that's how you say it. I think so, you know, I don't know. Yeah. You're, you're the, you, you've got roots <laughs> to the old country. <laughs> Um. Uh, okay. So, yeah. So he had a bit of a, a a bit of a reputation for being somewhat callous. A lot of people thought he was a huge dick. Yeah, he really does seem like a pretty big scumbag, as you'll probably hear. Yeah, based on <laughs> most of the things I've heard about him. So, um, Mickey Knox had a couple things to say about Leone. <laughs> Mickey Knox, as we said earlier, does not, or maybe we didn't mention it, but he does not seem to like Sergio Leone at all. Yeah, I imagine a lot of people who work with him don't like him. And I believe it was during the making of this film that Mickey Knox, like, ended his professional yeah. relationship with Sergio <laughs> Leone because he thought he was such a big So, dude. 
on uh, on Sergio Leone, uh, Mickey Knox said he was tense but cool. What I mean is that the crew had great respect for him because they were scared of him. <laughs> he always knew what he wanted, and it wasn't like some directors who weren't sure what they wanted. He always had a picture in his head. Hence, yeah, the 472-page script. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 he, yeah. <laughs> he took that picture in his head and, and spilled much ink about it. Um, and so, so Mickey Knox goes on to say um, about Sergio Leone's alleged callousness. Is, I've got to tell you that you could be dying of thirst and lying in the gutter and he'll step over you and walk away. <laughs> so savage. That, that's that's pretty, some pretty savage words and he keeps going. He said he had very little concern for others. He was, very, he was a very tough guy. There's, that's an aspect about him that I didn't like. To give you an example, we were staying at an Indian motel at the Monument Valley and by to, to be specific, by Indian he yeah. means like yeah. Native American here. That's um, what he's referring to. At the Monument Valley during the shooting of Once Upon a Time in, in Once Upon a Time in the West. During the evenings, the whole crew always left good tips for the Indian waiters because that's uh, because that's what these people earn to live. Sergio never left any tips for them. When I told him about this, he said the money he paid he for food tip. already included gratuity. I told him that it didn't leave that that it didn't leave them that much, and they expect this, and they need it. And but like Knox does go on to say that that's the incident is what ended uh, his working relationship. Yeah, like literally that day he was like, he's like I'm done. With that's you. A, like I assume this was at the like culmination of like a bunch of things. Yeah, they weren't. They were. They were in Monument Valley at the end of the shooting. Yeah schedule this was like that film was basically done okay so um, continuing um with stories that make sergio Lane seem like the world's biggest scumbag <laughs> <laughs> there's a there's a few more. okay so um according to uh screenwriter uh bernardo bertolucci the uh sergio was initially not didn't want to have a woman as the main character. So he, when he first brought it up, uh, he was like, no, we, we shouldn't do that. But he started to change his mind when he got the idea oh, God. that in the introductory shot of Jill, it would be shot from below the train platform so that the camera could see under Jill's dress oh my God. and show that she wasn't wearing any undergarments. Gross. Oh my God. Jesus Christ. What a fucking piece of trash. <laughs> so, Claudia Cardinale, who plays Jill, said she was never told of this idea. Fucking Christ. And that she definitely wouldn't have agreed to do the movie had it required the shot. Yeah. So, so presumably that, um, I, I, I assume that, uh, Leone was, was convinced otherwise. Why? That's, it would also just be such a bad shot. It would suck. I mean, the shot that they went with is amazing. Yeah. That, well, it's a great shot. Like that whole yeah. scene is awesome. The whole, the whole scene where they introduce Jill is fantastic. Like, 
Honestly, like the more and more I hear about Leone, I feel like he just kind of fluked into how good these films were because of the fucking people around him. Like that's such a bad idea. Like, <laughs> I know like, it's really taken bad. away from it, the film so much if he if it had been in there. Like Jesus Christ. <laughs> okay. Um. So <laughs> Next. once again, he was. He... <laughs> fucking piece of shit (laughs) but anyway so we were kind of talking about like he tended to make like long movies right and this movie was like particularly known for being really really long and slow so um sergio has this story that he sometimes tells about uh yep yeah there was a theater in paris that allegedly ran this film uninterrupted for two years. Oh, yeah. Did you say a theater in Paris? A theater in Paris, yeah. Yeah, that's that's another thing. I just want to slip in. It's like, this film was huge in France. Yeah, amazingly successful in France. and Like, more successful than anywhere else, yeah. by far. I don't know what it is about this movie that specifically speaks to the French uh, psyche, but uh, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe we should ask Fonzie about that. <laughs> yeah, well, well, yeah, we'll ask him. <laughs> um, so anyway, uh, what was I saying? So yeah, so Sergio Leone eventually came to this theater and uh, was surrounded by fans who wanted his autograph, right? Yeah, uh, it makes sense, you know? Uh, because obviously, you're not at this theater unless you want to watch uh, Once Upon a Time in the West. Eventually, he met the projectionist from the theater. Yeah. And allegedly... The projectionist told to Sergio, I kill you! The same movie over and over for two years! And it's so slow! I <laughs> <laughs> oh, do not blame him. Yeah. Um, I mean, as good as this, this movie isn't as enjoyable as I found it, like I can imagine if I had to watch this movie over and over again for two years. That would, I I don't yeah, know how it survived. I go insane. Yeah. Honestly, the first time I watched it this week, it took me like six sittings to get entirely through it. It's a long like, one. I had to keep and going slow. Back. Yeah, it is long and it is slow. Yeah, it's it's good though. <laughs> yeah, it's equal parts good, equal parts bad. We'll get into that. Yeah. Um. So, uh, there's another story specifically about this film, but I'm gonna tell you another story about the good the bad and the ugly before we get to that okay because i think it underscores like sergio Leone a bit better (laughs) so uh he was not known to have a lot of concern for his actors no i have heard that um so like a lot of his sets were not necessarily the safest places in the world. Where is this going? Specifically, while filming The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, uh, actor Eli Wallach almost died three times. Oh my gosh. How? So the first time was the scene where he's about to be hanged. Which, who who does he play again? He plays Tuco in the movie. Okay. Who who is... uh, yeah, he's an, another outlaw in the movie that hangs out with Clint Eastwood's character. So there's a scene where he's about to be hanged, and he's got the noose on his neck, and he's uh, he's uh, tied to a pole, basically, and he's sitting on a horse. Right. So the idea is uh, 
in the in the movie, he, uh, the they're supposed to let the horse go, and they're gonna fire a gun to make the horse run, and right. uh, the horse is gonna run away, and then he's gonna hang. But what was supposed to happen in the movie was that um, uh, Clint Eastwood's character was uh, off somewhere, and he was supposed to shoot the noose right before they the, right, the yeah, horse yeah. rode off. Right Great scene. Great scene, yeah. And so uh, what they had was they had a little uh, sort of, like, explosive thing in the uh, in the noose so that it would separate when the horse ran away. Sounds dangerous. Yeah. And so um, <laughs> they were not initially supposed to, as far as I know, show in the same shot the, the horse running away and the... Uh, in the explosion. Okay. But the explosion, I think, startled the horse. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> really, an explosion, yeah. like, uh, right next to a horse's fucking head startled a horse. I'm shocked. And so then the horse runs away. Oh, my God. With Eli Wallach on it. And it just runs off into the desert. I assume he doesn't know how to ride a horse. <laughs> no, he doesn't. Uh, yeah, he's just holding on for dear life. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> uh, poor horse, dude. Yeah. <laughs> so that was number one. <laughs> That's right. There's two. Yeah. More. The second time is uh, he has the. Uh... Oh yeah. So actually, uh, after this scene uh, that we did it, that that he almost got killed while riding a horse. Uh Sergio was like, okay, let's do it again. <laughs> <laughs> what a fucking man. I know. So then there was the other uh scene where Yeah. He's supposed to cut his handcuffs on a train. And so apparently like uh the the train came like within like really, really close to Ilawalik's head. And it would have decapitated him. <laughs> Had he been just a little bit over, I imagine they just fucking did it with a real train. How else could you? Yeah, do I it? don't think they were actually going to break the handcuffs. But right. yeah, um, so but anyway, uh, he refused to do that one again. And then <laughs> the third time, him. yeah, is uh, they they were using like some kind of corrosive acid to uh for what okay so there's a bag of gold that's supposed to burst open and all the gold's supposed to fall out so they put like a little bit of acid on it so that it would come apart that seems like such a stupid roundabout way to do that i, I don't know <laughs> but anyway the uh so they had to carry this acid out there in some kind of container uh-huh. And so the container they used was a bottle of lemon soda. Okay. Which they had just casually let left lying around the set. Oh my god. No. Eli Wallach <laughs> <laughs> was a big fan of this type of soda. Oh my god. <laughs> and he drank some of it. <laughs> Oh my god, he just drank. Why would they leave corrosive acid in a fucking I don't know. soda bottle open around <laughs> set? <laughs> oh my god. So anyway, uh, this next one is admittedly pretty dark. And uh, I will say uh, I was yes. actually unable to completely confirm it. 
but there's reason enough to believe that this probably happened. Yeah, well, this, this, as we were saying earlier, this is one of those things where it's like the only real source is Mickey Knox. Yeah. Um, and he clearly did not like Sergio Leone, so um, yeah. I think it's po- certainly possible that he may have embellished some details, but the the basic facts, I guess, are there, I suppose. Yeah, but I mean, like, even without this story, it's still enough to convince me, at least, that, like, you know, Sergio Leone's a pretty big scumbag. <laughs> yeah, he's, like, without this alone, he's a fucking prick, but, you know, this is just, just cherry on top. Yeah, so... So one of the three gunmen in the in the in the opening scene, uh, the was longest played, opening scene, yeah, in the longest opening scene of all time, was played by Al Mullock. Al Al Mullock. Yeah. So. Torontonian. Yeah, Torontonian. So, uh, tragically, Al Mullock committed suicide during the filming of this movie by jumping out of his hotel window. Indeed. Allegedly. This was done while wearing the costume for the film. Oh, boy. Uh, Production manager uh, Claudio Mancini and screenwriter Mickey Knox were sitting in a room uh, below uh, Al Mullock's room, I guess. Well, that's the thing. It was apparently it was only a three story hotel. Yeah. Um, And so they saw uh, him fall past their window. Jesus Christ. So according to Mickey Knox, while they were driving uh, Moloch away to the hospital, because the fall did not actually kill him. Three stories. Uh, Sergio Leone said to um, Mancini, who was the production manager that was with Mickey Knox, uh, get the costume. We need the costume. Oh my God. He was fucking like, yeah, only thing he cared about was getting the costume for the film because yeah he was allegedly wearing his his film costume when he jumped off the building yeah oh my god and they wanted he wanted them to like strip strip him out of the costume so that he could have the costume for like the shot i guess because i think the final scene uh where they actually shoot all the guys yeah i believe so it's not actually mickey knox because that was after this so it's somebody else wearing his costume it's totally fucked up. Yeah, it's a bit fucked up. And again, it's like a, it all comes from Mickey Knox. I tried to find what was the production manager's name? You said? um Claudio Mancini. Claudio Manzini. I tried to find like if he see if he had made a statement about it at all, but I couldn't find anything he said about it. Yeah. So I don't at know. least nothing in English. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Nothing I found in English. So, now that we've, I suppose, firmly established that uh, Sergio <laughs> is a huge asshole. <laughs> Where we stand on the whole, yeah, on the whole Sergio Leone issue. Uh, I suppose we should move on. Yeah, yeah, we can start talking about, about the movie specifically, maybe a bit more.
yeah, sorry. We just gotta like cool off after that, like just like you know, circus of Leone being a trash person. Um. <clears throat> so, uh, production for 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 Once Upon a Time in the West started in 1968, April of 1968, and I think they wrapped in July. Um, but as we were talking about earlier, like kind of calling into question its uh, spaghetti western status, um, it was it was filmed in um, tons of locations, um, in in this order. So so first they filmed like interiors at a studio in Rome called Cinecita, which was like a pretty famous uh, spaghetti western studio. I think all the spaghetti westerns shot something there. Um, so that was like the interior for like Sweetwater Station and a few other interiors. And then I think, funny enough, most of the like the bulk of the of the film was shot in the the southern province uh, yeah. of Almeria, Almeria in in Spain. Well, yeah, a lot of uh, spaghetti westerns were actually shot. There. Well, yeah, that's uh, that's what I was gonna mention. Is actually yeah. like it's well, it's, it it's like the only desert in Europe. Yeah, like sp- spaghetti western is kind of hand in hand with a paella western. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like a lot of the cast and everything and the crew was Italian, but most of them were actually filmed primarily in Spain. I would say. Yeah, and uh, according to Mickey Knox, there was also usually on a spaghetti western set there was often a, a Spanish person because so much of it was mm. anyway. Yeah, a lot of it had to do with Spain, um, but in this in Almeria. Um, I don't know how you pronounce it. Almer- Almeria. Uh, Al- Almer- I don't know. <laughs> I'm not Spanish. <laughs> <laughs> no, me neither. Um, set designer, um, named Carlos Simi. Simi, Carlos Simi. Um, he built the set for Flagstone City from scratch, right. and it cost something like $250,000 at the time. So it was like one of the most expensive, uh, sets ever built uh, at the time um and then also shot in almeria they uh was the uh the opening scene uh the saloon the auction house the hotel mm. all that was uh in spain as well as any as well as any, any scenes involving railway uh, railroads were all spanish um and then they uh they they uh, finished as we were saying earlier. They finished filming in uh, Monument Valley, um, right? And that's yeah. where. So you just know. to kind of convince you that you're actually not in Spain, you're in. <laughs> yeah, that was like establishing shots, and that 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 scene at the beginning when Jill rides to Sweetwater Ranch. Um, Although uh, Monument Valley is in Utah, right? It's on the border between Utah and Arizona. Okay, so it is okay. It, it's not completely out of the way from where this is set. No, 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 it's not. Um, as well as being kind of a huge asshole, uh, Sergio Leone was also like pretty um, detail oriented in terms of like his set design and his costume well, yeah. design and stuff. Yeah, we cared about definitely certain things there are some goofs in this movie that uh i, I might want to bring up at some point <laughs> well that's the thing is that, well, i've always found i've always found that he it's like this weird mixture of like 
like accurate accuracy and clearly like 60s fashion yeah uh, oh yeah the costumes they're, they're like um charles bronson like harmonica his character is like wearing a very like not um 1800s type of suit it's like what he walked to the set wearing you know I mean? <laughs> yeah, exactly that's what it looks like it's like the same outfit that uh, was worn in Midnight Cowboy or whatever. Yeah, exactly. It's weird. But apparently, uh, apparently, Sergio Leone and Henry Fonda spent um, hours um, trying on hundreds of different right. hats to try to find. <laughs> so he the was right very one. concerned about the hat, but he didn't care what they were, uh, what kind of shirt they were wearing. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. It's really weird what he what he was uh, cared about. You said you, you there were some goops. Well, I mean, the thing that I specifically noticed was the harmonica. There were uh, clearly yes. two different harmonicas. One which was like crushed somewhat and had a big dent in it, and one that <laughs> was just completely pristine. And they switched yeah. back and forth between him using the two harmonicas like in different shots, and it's just bizarre. Yeah, I noticed that as yeah. well. It is weird. It's kind of jarring. It's like pretty obvious too. I wonder what happened to it. I don't know because I mean it clearly. It's not like they broke the harmonica, or I don't know because like it's 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 not just in one scene. No, no, it's like the whole movie. It's like throughout the entire movie. Yeah, and it's like most jarring at at the end when they do that. They have that bit uh, during the like the flashback. That's like the most jarring difference. Yeah, I exactly. Think, but... It is throughout the whole movie, switching Which back Which is, forth. like, it's bizarre, because, like, you would think, like, oh, that might happen because maybe the harmonica got dented at some point, right? I don't know. But no, they were switching back. Before, there were two different harmonicas on set while they were filming it, and I don't know why. Why were they switching? It's one of those things that definitely, like, the editor probably drove, it probably drove the editor crazy. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But like obviously you're you're not you're not gonna do like reshoots because the harmonica was like dented. But like it's just annoying as fuck. I'm sure. Do you want to talk about that crane shot a little bit? Yeah, okay, I definitely do. Um, so, okay. We talked a little bit about uh, 
sort of Jill coming off the train a little bit earlier and how there was a really horrible idea that Sergio Leone did that had that thankfully didn't make it into the movie. But there, the scene that did make it into the movie is fantastic. So, like, yeah, you see Jill. She comes off the train, and she's just uh, looking over the landscape. And you have sort of this crane that, like, follows her off. And uh, not only is it a crane, but the crane is sitting on a dolly. So that, that a dolly is like a... It's like a little wheeled cart that you put a camera on top of. Uh, so the the dolly solid sort of follows her off the train, and uh, it takes her to the station, right? And she's she's looking around to see, like, okay, there was somebody supposed to meet me here, and he's not here. And so uh, they as the dolly is following this, so they put an insert in there where she looks up at the clock and then she looks up at her watch. And then, then they do kind of like a cut. Uh, and so a bunch of time has passed. And now the once busy, like bustling train station is like empty and she's still waiting there. There's nobody there. And so then, yeah. Cause the McBains are, yeah. Dead. Cause the McBains all got massacred by, uh, Frank and, uh, yeah. So then we get this one sort of final shot where she goes to the station and then and then she walks into the station to basically see what's the matter and see what's going on. And so then the camera follows her and she walks into the station and the camera pans over and then looks through the window into the station. Great shot. Well, yeah, yeah, and she's talking in there to... Um, I don't know. I guess the I don't know who Station the people are in there. Station master and that stagecoach driver, yeah, stage, or whoever. Yeah. And so then, while we're still looking through the window, she walks out the door into a door that we can't see. So like we we don't see what it's going into. And so yeah, off, uh, uh, off screen. screen. But then the camera on the crane pulls up and goes over top of the uh, roof of the train station. And then we reveal the, uh, Jill walking out onto the town of Flagstone, Arizona. It's excellent. And it's excellent fantastic. Shot. And it, it just, the, the fact that they got like three shots in one, like without any cuts in there. Yeah. It, it's super cool to me. It, it's one of those shots like the mobility of it is yeah. so impressive especially for the time it's like like again to sum up they like they they drag along the tr length of the train uh, as they like rise up and then they like pan over to the station and like uh, pan down or tilt down to the window and they, they go like at some points from like a total wide shot like into like a close-up on jill's face it's yeah, it's a it's an expertly yeah, it's filmed expertly done. Uh, who's the cinematographer and for this movie? It's a guy named uh, Tonino Deli Cole. Right. Okay. Uh, did he work on uh, anything else? Perhaps some other Sergio Leone movies. Um, or maybe he was uh, fed up with Sergio and decided to. He he no uh, he ended up actually working on Once Upon a Time in America. Oh, okay. Um, I think maybe some other stuff. Okay. But he mostly worked in Italian films. I don't. It doesn't look like he ever. You know, he never broke into Hollywood. Right. Well, he does a 
fantastic job. Oh, he's, oh, he's, it's an amazing, the cinematography in this movie is, is, that's, I don't know if I've said this out loud or if I've just been thinking it, but it just seems to me like, like Sergio Leone fluked into this fucking, into an amazing film in a lot of ways because of all the people around Yeah, but him. I mean, the thing is he did it multiple times is the thing. I know, but it's because he kept the same people around him. Yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess he stuck to he stuck to a kind of playbook. Yeah, exactly. He 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 had a formula that he stuck to, and this guy also did a good bad movie. Yeah, oh, okay. Antonio yeah. Del But yeah, people around him—that's what made him so good. <laughs> and uh, you know, stealing from a source that uh, is qu- stealing from sources of quality. Well, those are people around him. He stole from people around him. Are you saying Sergio is a hack? I don't know. I don't know. This might be a hot take, but I think I, I you said it. <laughs> I said, "Are you saying?" But you said the word, <laughs> not me. Okay. So yeah, you heard it here first. Sergio is a hack. <laughs> <laughs> you know who's not a hack though? Who? The fucking uh, composer for this film. Ah, Ennio Morricone. An absolute. An absolute, absolute true legend. legend. May he may he rest in peace. May he rest in peace. Yeah. So uh, one one of the reasons why we decided to pick this movie uh, is, I mean, I don't actually know what order these podcasts are going to air in, but at least when we were deciding what movie to do, uh, was around the time that uh, Ennio Morricone had tragically passed away. May he rest in peace. And we wanted to kind of do a tribute to him. Uh, by talking about one of the movies that he scored. Indeed. And this is the one we decided to do. Yeah, I mean, there's some fantastic fucking pieces in here. Yeah, yeah, and I'm sure, like, we'll probably touch on him again later on at some point. Um, But he, he made Sergio Leone's movies. He, he elevated them. Without a doubt. Oh, def. He elevated every movie he scored. Yeah, of course. Uh, do you yeah. want to just uh, like take a minute to 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 just show some of the music that was in this movie? Oh, okay. Yes, so let's, let's uh, do it. Yeah. Let's start with. So yeah, one of the interesting things about this movie is that this is very much like a leitmotif heavy kind of movie in terms of the score. So like each character has a theme, and then they uh, they kind yeah, of weave yeah. that in to the other themes whenever that character comes up, right? So I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna play for you Cheyenne's theme.
<laughs> like that a little bit there at the end. It's great. It's a great theme. So yeah, that's uh, and I think that kind of captures like the character Cheyenne. So that he's like, kind of like the more clumsy, silly kind of uh, almost totally. comic relief character. If there were to be a comic relief in this movie, then I guess he would kind of be it. And as you were as you were playing that back, I just like was thinking, um, yeah, every time that I was watching the movie and I like had a thought, like it popped in my head, like, oh wow, this is a really good movie. I'm like thinking back, and it was like it was during the peak moments of of the score, like uh, it was during the McBain where he like shoots the uh, McBain farm where he shoots the kid and like that guitar comes in and it's just like all those moments that's when I was like oh this is actually really good it's like when the shots lined up so perfectly with that Sound you want to hear Jill's theme? oh yeah yeah let's hear Jill's theme Yeah, so one of the things I like about that theme specifically is like how much yeah. mileage he gets out of that one like little melody. Well, yeah, you mean like it? It just kind of keeps coming back and referencing that. Yeah, but like he does it on like different instruments. Like he and and that happens throughout the movie. Like right, you'll yeah. get like uh, a reference to a theme that'll be played within somebody else's theme, for example, that will have, like, uh, it'll be yeah. arranged such that that, like, it, it it plays on the instrument that it makes sense in at the time. Exactly. It's so expertly intertwined like that, where they, like, they, like, reference other themes. It's yeah, like, it's it fucking was, awesome. <laughs> oh, it's just such <laughs> a well-written score. Um, it also kind of reminded me, just hearing her theme... Just like I just I just didn't enjoy so many like scenes with her and oh. the men. Yeah. It was just unpleasant. Yeah. Well, I mean, well, the first time I saw this movie, like it wasn't clear like until halfway through the movie that, you know, Cheyenne and uh and um Armonica were supposed to be the good guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And cuz like when he when she when he meets her, he's like all weird and like yeah. assaults her basically. It's like what the yeah. fuck is that about? He like rips her shirt for like no reason or something. It's like he's supposed to be the fucking good guy. What well, yeah, fuck? that's 
one of the things that like I think also like highlights how this movie is sort of um goes against the grain on uh, on the uh, sort of the stock western characters different yeah like nobody's a good guy in this movie except maybe Jill a- and McBain but he gets shot in like the first yeah. like all the good guys get exactly killed. well Jill survives but you know yeah right right um but yeah like Cheyenne has that line at the end about like um how he's the wrong guy because he's something about death I forget that famous line but like yeah the highlighting that um he's a dirtbag yeah no like nobody's clean in this movie no um yeah uh do we haven't do you have the main theme we haven't heard the main theme yet uh the main theme okay yeah give me one second So while we were listening to that, I actually remembered uh, a story uh, about one of the pieces in this film. Oh, yeah? Okay. And it touches on one of the subjects of the music section in a previous podcast. Oh, really? Yeah. uh, So John Carpenter. (laughs) uh, Who? Oh, yes, indeed. Yeah. So who actually worked with Ennio Morricone when Ennio Morricone scored the thing. Ennio Marconi's like chameleon. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, John Carpenter was such a big fan of Ennio Marconi, which is why he he did the score for the thing, that at John Carpenter's wedding, they played uh, Jill's theme. Which wedding? Uh, is this the wedding to uh, uh, Adrian, Adrian, Adrian Barbeau? Yeah. Yeah. Um, they played that theme. Like, in, <laughs> in the... like. In, during the ceremony. That's a like, weird, <laughs> interesting choice. Yeah. I guess it makes sense. Okay. Oh, weird. John Carpenter, yeah, big, big fan. Um, that that main theme is definitely yeah, a slow Yeah, uh, I would say. Uh, much like the film <laughs> itself. <laughs> this film is a very slow word. Uh, did 
Ennio Morricone also did the um the soundtrack for a World Cup as uh, well. He did. Uh, nineteen seventy eight. Uh, where was that? <laughs> I, let me find it. <laughs> well, uh, I will sort of bring in the theme, and you can look that up. figure out when it was where it was yeah i sure did <laughs> all right where was it okay so 1978 fifa world cup was uh in argentina but okay. there was a good amount of controversy surrounding it so just let me read read this to you from the wikipedia page for a second <laughs> okay um a controversy surrounding the 1978 world cup was I that mean, argentina what uh, well i mean just point out the world cup is no stranger to controversy <laughs> no certainly not all the way back <laughs> long before 1978 yeah um <laughs> argentina had undergone a military coup only two years before the cup right which installed a dictatorship known as the national reorganization process Oof. less than a year before the world cup in 1977 interior minister general albano hargid Har- uh, Harguinde stated that 5,618 people had recently disappeared. Um, The infamous Higher School of Mechanics of the Navy held concentration camp prisoners of the dirty war, and those held captive reportedly could hear the roars of the crowd during the matches held at River Plate's Monumental Stadium, located only a mile away. Well, that's... Um, Prompting echoes of Hitler's and Mussolini's alleged political manipulation of sports during the 1936 uh, Berlin Olympics and the 1934 FIFA World Cup. Jeez. Pretty classic FIFA. Yeah, so standard (laughs) FIFA. um, Uh, Argentina would also go on to win, if you were curious. Who would? Argentina. Oh, okay. Classic. (laughs) I wonder if that was... uh, I don't know. Definitely not not rigged at all. <laughs> no, of course not. But yeah, we're getting off topic. <laughs> this is, this is... <laughs> all roads lead to FIFA's controversy. So moving moving aside from uh, the potential political manipulation of <laughs> sports, um, and anything else you want to highlight about uh, Enio's career? The, the the main theme that we just listened to and the, the Man with the Harmonica were some of his most famous pieces and would actually feature in his live performances for decades. Yep. So they, you know, they made it up there. All right. Welcome to our Six Degrees of Star Trek. This is the section that nobody asked for. But, you but you're, you're, you're getting it anyway. You, I know you want it. <laughs> I want it. I love <laughs> it. <laughs> 
it's my favorite yeah. segment. This is the segment where we find connections to our beloved Star Trek uh, through IMDb. This was an interesting film for this because I think this is the first movie that I found zero direct connection. Which probably because, you know, not an American production. Yeah. And yeah, so not an American production, and there was only one Star Trek running around the time that this happened. So, yeah. uh, so what did you? Yeah. Find? What do you got so the first one is through Henry Fonda. The old Fonderino. Yeah, the Fonderino. Yeah, I was Henry Fonda it was going to be a bit of a notable challenge. father of Jane and Peter Fonda. <laughs> notable father yeah well he is both of those like, he's he's a legend in his own right and then legend absolutely also legend. there are jane and peter fonda henry fonda was in a movie called stage struck stage struck uh but anyway that movie's not particularly important but what is important is who else was in that movie who else was in that movie canadian legend Toronto boy, Christopher Plummer. Oh, yes. <laughs> Absolutely legend. So, Christopher Plummer happened to have been in a little movie called Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country, where he played the Klingon Chang. Yeah, he's in Star Trek Six. I didn't know he was in Star Trek. But anyway, so uh, interestingly, Christopher Plummer actually goes way back uh, with Shatner to their theater days. Yeah, so they they've been actually friends for a long time, and um, they're like the same age. Yet Christopher Plummer looks easily twenty. I don't know what Shatner does, but somehow he Shatner's like fucking nearly ninety years old, and he still looks great. He just expanded a bit. Yeah, so he he obviously is in Star Trek because, you know, Shatner had to get his old Canadian theater buddy in there at some point. Right. <laughs> so, which... Oh, yeah. So, okay. it's The Undiscovered Country, Star Trek Six. Yeah, when, yeah, when, when was that movie? I think, yeah. Oh, okay. Um, so, Charles Bronson. Powerful Charles Bronson. I would love to see him in an episode of Unfortunately, Star Trek. he's not been in an episode of Star Trek. But you know what he was Darn. in? What was he Death in? Wish 3. <laughs> uh, Charles Bronson in all the Death Wish movies, the star of the Death Wish series. Yeah. Franchise. Yeah, um, <laughs> you know who else was in Death Wish 3? Uh... Marina Sirtis. <laughs> <laughs> so, for those of you who don't know, uh, Maria Sirtis plays Counselor Deanna Troy in Star Trek The Next Generation. Ugh. <laughs> Fucking hate Deanna Troy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, to be, the, uh, to be honest, I'm not the biggest fan of TNG, but... No, I'm not either, and she's one of the main yeah. reasons for that. She was in a movie with Charles Bronson. Death Wish 3. She was basically in Once Upon a Time in the West, really. Yeah. Yeah, she was in it, definitely. 
she got shot at the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> that was actually the fly was actually landing on her face. The fly was for <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah okay moving right along uh oh wait, no, 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 we have one more before i get into this okay so okay. uh jason robarts who plays cheyenne in this movie he w- was in a movie called long day's journey into the night sorry what long day's journey into the night yeah which also okay. contained actor Dean Stockwell. Dean okay. Stockwell, uh, noted uh, actor who's basically been in, I think, like almost every sci-fi series I can think of. Yeah, would you call him um, an absolute legend? Uh, he's a legend. I don't know if he's an absolute legend. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. So he's just not quite an absolute legend, just a legend. Yeah, he's been in So he's what? been he's in been Star in... Trek Enterprise, which is what we're uh okay. what we're connecting him with. Uh which is um in the episode Detained, uh which is Star Trek Enterprise season 1 episode 21. Okay. And one of the interesting things about that episode is that uh the captain of the Enterprise in um in the series Star Trek Enterprise is is played by Scott Bakula. Archer. So him and Dean Stockwell were actually the stars of Quantum Leap. Oh, great. Yeah. yeah. So that was kind of a reunion for them and that's why that's an interesting episode. That is good. But uh yeah, so he was in a movie with Jason Robards and then he was in Star Trek. But yeah, he's also been in like pretty much every sci-fi series I can think of. He's been in He's been in Stargate. He's in Battlestar Galactica, I think. Uh huh. Yeah, Battlestar Galactica, yeah, as well. Um, and so moving on, I'm gonna do four this time, but this one's kind of a a big one. Keep them coming. Yeah. This is a what? So this one's kind of a big one. With we have okay. one, okay, one connection that splits off into a bunch of connections. That's interesting. Okay. So this is also okay. through Henry Fonda. Okay, so Henry Fonda was in a movie uh called Warlock. That was wasn't that a western movie? It's a western. <laughs> <laughs> That's one of the films that they that they were that was referenced in the Once Upon a Time in the West. Yeah. And this movie is a Star Trek gold mine. Oh really? <laughs> oh really? Because in this movie is DeForest Kelly. He would be he would be, he's a great Western actor. Exactly. He's obviously, like, you look at that guy, I think he belongs in a Western. Yeah. So much exactly. so that they made several episodes of Star Trek that were basically Westerns. <laughs> and yeah, he was right in his element. Um, yeah. And so, you know, in many ways, Star Trek is basically a Western. In yeah, space. in a lot of ways. It's the final exactly. frontier. So, but also in that movie uh, is noted uh, 1960s TV actor. Frank Gorshin. No, just noted, not legend. Noted Riddler <laughs> from Batman. <laughs> Frank Gorshin, uh, who was also in uh, the Star Trek TOS episode, Let This Be Your Last Battlefield. It's a great episode. Yeah, so that's the one where, where there's like, 
it's potentially like the preachiest episode of Star Trek. <laughs> like it's not subtle at all. Yeah, there's like there's like the yin and the yang. Oh well, yeah, dude. yeah. He's got half his fat face paint. I thought you were talking about the yangs and the cons because that's a totally different episode. <laughs> no, 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 no. The guy who's like, yeah, no, totally, no, no, no. I was talking about the fact that he's painted like uh Yeah, like... yeah. So he's got half of his face is painted black and half of his face is painted white. And so, yeah, he's chasing this guy across the galaxy because half of his face is painted black and half of his face is painted white, but it's the other way around. <laughs> See, oh, it's like, inverse. yeah, oh you get gosh. it? You get what's going on here? Really, they really got <laughs> exactly. hit that one home. So, yeah, he was in that episode. He, we're still on the Warlock. Oh. This oh, really? is still the same movie that had DeForest Kelly in it. Oh, my God. And, and, and also in that movie. Okay. Is Gary fucking Lockwood? Have you ever heard of Gary Lockwood? The name's ringing a bell. Uh, he was in a little movie why. called he... 2001: A Space Odyssey. He's uh, yeah, he's yes. Uh, who Frank, was he? Uh, in, right. Yeah. yeah. He dies in that movie as well. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, um, Gary Lockwood uh was in the Star Trek episode Where No Man Has Gone Before. Which uh, mm-hmm. I believe that was the first Star Trek episode that was filmed, except for the pilot. But I believe it was broadcast third. So Gary Lockwood plays uh, this guy who kind of goes crazy because he goes to the edge of the universe and he becomes like super powerful, which is a very common Star Trek plot device. Yeah. Uh, so, but it doesn't stop there. Because not only was Gary Lockwood going. in this movie Warlock with Henry Fonda, he was also in another movie called Fire Creek. Fire Creek. Wasn't Henry Fonda also the villain in that movie? Uh, well, he was in the movie. I didn't really look into it. It's also a Western. <laughs> 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 uh, yeah. Makes sense. Is that it for that one move? That for yeah, Warlock? That's, um, so, yeah, that's pretty much it for all the Star Trek connections that I could come up with. I'm 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 kind of thinking of uh figuring out a better way to come up with these connections because it's 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 really unless there's a direct connection, it's a very difficult process to come up with these. Yeah. Cuz I essentially just yeah, have to I... click through IMDb pages until I until like you find it and find somebody who's in Star <laughs> Trek or find yeah, exactly. I was just looking into it, and and Fire Creek is in fact the uh, other film in which Henry Fonda plays the okay. villain. Um, it's like the only yeah, because I mean, this this movie definitely went against the grain casting him as a villain. Yeah, totally. Um, it, it was I think the first one because they they both came out. In yeah, nineteen sixty eight. Uh, I also want to point out also in the movie Fire Creek is Jack Elam. Who? Ah, Jackie. Oh, he really? Yeah. That's so he's also in this movie. He's not in Star Trek, unfortunately. He. <laughs> no, no, but but it is still an excellent yeah. segue because he is in this movie. He's in the in the beginning. In the longest opening, opening credits. All right. So all what's the section that we're gonna do now? Well, we're doing the truth, right? Yes, the truth. Thank you.
Uh, yeah, the truth is the segment of the podcast where we find out some fact, which <laughs> is questionable, has some kind of question behind it, has some something hidden meaning, something explore. deeper, and we get to the bottom of it. We get to the truth because the truth is out there, people. I want to believe. I need to believe. <laughs> exactly. What do we got this week? Okay, this, so yeah, so installment. this week, this yeah. time today. <laughs> so we mentioned it earlier briefly. Is the scene at the at the beginning, um, where the actor Jack Elam sits down and he's waiting for the train with Harmonica to arrive so they can murder Harmonica, but obviously Harmonica ends up murdering them. Um, but before that, how many horses you bring? Too many. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So there's the scene where the fly lands on his face. And it's a really long, really, like, viscerally uncomfortable scene. When this fly lands. You feel watching that scene like the fly is on your face. You really do. And you just, like, want to swat it and just get enraged. And it's crawling around his face. It's, It's aggravating. It is, and then meanwhile, there's the scene. other. Uh, there's also Woody Strode is uh, having the uh, the water drip on his head. Yeah, it's all just a. It's like a. T- it's just tense. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like something's about um, to go down. But obviously, when I first watched this, it's like you know, this is in 1968. Obviously, there's no computer generated graphics. I, I was very curious as to how. Whether a whether or not it was a real fly, and b how they managed to how they managed to get the fly on the on his. Face. I mean, I'm saying it right now. That's definitely a real fly. Yeah, that's your. Yeah, just, no, that's no. Your... There's no way they would fake that. Like it. How would they even do it? Like without CGI. Like they. It, it literally moves around and flies around and walks all over his face. Exactly. Yeah. It looks like it's got to be a real fly. Yeah. But how did they like control it? Like, did they train the fly? Well, I heard several, um, several, uh, different stories. Um, one thing I read is that there was, it was, a a prop, but that's just I don't know how they would have done that. Um, another story I read is that they, they smeared, uh, Elam's beard with honey to attract flies (laughs) for the scene. Like uh, um, his face looks like really sweaty in the scene. It's like it does. Like, it could I be, but it could I don't be. know. Maybe they didn't use that much honey. honey. Like just a thin dust, like a thin layer of honey, like a little coat. A thin, yeah, <laughs> just little, enough to get the fly little, interested. Yeah. A primer, a primer, yeah. Ugh. Um, and another another similar theory is that uh, I heard people said his beard was smeared with. Okay, jam. that's basically the same thing but that's also that's i think that's um, grosser well honey you know what kind of jam it though? was they just it just said jam okay so maybe strawberry jam maybe marmalade maybe something else so what do you think based on watching it what do you think what do i i mean it's, it's definitely a real it? fly i would say that's but real um fly. as to how they got it it's like Mm, yeah, I think that I guess they smeared it with honey because I mean I feel like the jam would be too obvious because 
I think probably they use like a little bit of honey or maybe just some kind of like sugar, like sugar water kind of thing. Because it doesn't really look like there's that much on his face, except for the sweat. Even then, like, say, sure, so they smeared his beard with, yeah. with honey or jam or what have you. Um, but then the, they just sit around waiting for a fly to land on it? Like, I don't know, maybe they had like a, maybe they had like a jar full of flies. <laughs> <laughs> they let like one out at a time. <laughs> and like they did it until one land. I mean, if you had like a jar full of flies... Like I'm sure you can buy flies somewhere. I, I'm I'm reptile store maybe reptile. Maybe I mean I don't know about like uh I don't know maybe there are fly breeders I don't know um maybe specifically for movies prop fly breeders. Yeah, because you know there's plenty of movies where they have flies. You know maybe somebody's got jars full of flies I, for sale. No way that can sustain a business. I don't know. Maybe they sell other things too. Maybe like they do all sorts of insects. Oh yeah, we do. We do. We do film insects. That's our thing. I mean, there are like people who just have animals that they rent to films. Yeah, no, you're right. It's true. Why not flies? Why not flies? This could be a big thing. We could start this business right now. I mean, I, I feel like it would be very annoying to have to breed flies. <laughs> yeah, well, their lifespan's only what, like a week. Yeah, you'd have to keep replenishing them. You. Have dead flies all over the place. A lot of dead flies you're wading through. Yeah. Okay, so that's a no. That's a no on that business plan then. Okay. Okay, so... Yeah, I think they had some kind of repository of okay. flies. Would you like to know the truth? Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, I would. <laughs> okay, so... The 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 source on this is um an interview with a guy. Is it Knox? No, but uh, it okay. was it's adjacent. It's by the, one of the uh, one of the same guys who did an interview with Knox. Okay. Also did an interview uh, at the recommendation of Knox. Okay. Um, yeah, Mickey Knox told the interviewer to call up Claudio uh, Mancini or Mancini, who I believe was the production designer. Um. And he had a small, uh, a small interview with, with the production designer. And this is what the, the production designer said in this interview about the fly. Yeah. Um, he said, um, At first we prepared a false fly with the special effect people, but it didn't work. Though, uh, it didn't work the way we wanted. We lost one hour with the false fly. Then we took a real fly and put marmalade on Elam's face. Oh, okay. And, and the fly that... stayed there. Hmm. We did with just one real fly. It was a miracle. <laughs> <laughs> so it sounds like they didn't really prepare for this. No. The, it sounds the... like they just showed up on the set, and then Sergio was like, okay, we gotta shoot the one with the fly on his beard. And then, like... <laughs> and he goes on to say, um, the drop of water on Woody's head took two to three hours to shoot. Really? And he doesn't go into any more detail about why. <laughs> why? I feel like that would be pretty straightforward. He said, that, yeah, he says the entire little station scene took four days. We shot that scene. It feels like it takes four days to watch. Yeah, it does. <laughs> so, there you so have it. So that's it. It's just marmalade on his it's just It's fucking just marmalade. I mean, yeah, I think they had to use something that was, like, not too, not too different from his skin tone. Yeah. 
Like strawberry jam wouldn't have worked. I don't think. <laughs> no, no, marmalade's orangey and yellowy enough for yeah. kind of a yeah. So it it, it kind of matched his. Uh, I don't know. Maybe they maybe they uh, maybe the makeup people tried to 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 use makeup to make it his skin tone match the marmalade perfectly. <laughs> <laughs> that would be so good. Uh, what do you think they applied the marmalade with? Uh that's a good question. Did they use like a little makeup brush or something? Yeah, like that? or did someone just scoop it out with their bare hands, slather it on his face? <laughs> I'd like to know that actually. Yeah, and 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 I'm wondering if they had the marmalade on hand or if they had to go get. Yeah, it. maybe it was part of somebody's was, lunch it, it, or it something. It might have been at the catering like station, yeah. right? So maybe they. So had this it. just further adds to the the my theory that Sergio Leone is just just a culmination of surrounded by very like yeah very very talented people and that he just stumbled into and <laughs> a fluke fly that is just willing to land on yeah he got kind of like <laughs> literally described as a miracle by yeah. the <laughs> by the production designer. But yeah, there you go. There you have it. Now you know. Now you know the truth. Wow. I feel so much more informed. It's out there. It's definitely out there. So, okay, before we, like, move on, because I think we're getting close to the end here, there's a little bit of a, of a story I just wanted to work in here. Of course. Uh, so we were talking about that scene, and so what happens at the end of that scene? Everyone dies. Yeah. Except for Harmonica. Yeah, so they fall onto the ground, right? Yeah, they get shot. Would you consider that a stunt? Uh, yeah, no, yeah, I, that's a stunt. That's okay, a stunt. You got to do a prat fall. That's onto a hard surface because they. I okay, believe well, they, they had a guy for them. that. Okay, <laughs> they had a stunt guy for that. Okay, uh, well, they had a whole crew of people that basically rode horses and got shot. <laughs> I mean, fuck, it's hard to you can't fall falling off a horse could kill you. Yeah, so, but one of the interesting things uh-huh. is one of the people on that crew uh, was John John Landis, none other than future, future director John Landis. Oh, yes. That's right. He was on the stunt crew. <laughs> yeah, he was on the stunt crew. So he, uh, he actually worked on a lot of, like, uh, movies in Europe around this time. Really? Uh, because he, he was... Uh, he was trying to break into the industry, so he he had some like really low level roles on a lot of film sets. Low level which? Low level roles. Right. Like so he, he would like uh he would often like find himself being like one of the grips or like working on the stunt crew <laughs> or something like that. That's awesome. And so um yeah. Uh, he actually has a little uh, video that uh, I saw on YouTube about him talking about this movie and uh, a little bit of his experience on oh, it. Oh, yeah. Lay it on me. Um, yeah, so basically, just like he was saying, like, uh, he, really lo- he, he really likes the movie. It's one of his favorite westerns. But um, he keeps talking throughout the entire thing. It's like, oh, was that me? I don't know. Maybe <laughs> that was me, uh, like, who died and fell over. We basically, he basically worked with a bunch of, like, uh, like Spanish and Italian yeah. guys who uh, who were there to like fall over and get shot. Was that me? Was that me? <laughs> was that me? Was that me? I don't know. Uh, and yeah, uh, and he talks a little bit about like uh, 
how it was hilarious to watch Sergio Leone giving directions. He said he 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 said it was like a comedy routine. What does that mean? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I, I can't really extrapolate what he means by that. Like, yeah, I think he he's he was probably just referring to like the uh, the the larger than life personality of Sergio Leone, right? And maybe his like timing was very uh, uh, precise, or I don't know. I don't even know. Just no. I think it was like you know he like Sergio Leone seems like a character out of a comedy routine. He's just stat bizarre. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> so, uh, I guess we're nearing the end here of our podcast today. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, I think that um, we've come to generally our our final section where we uh, we um, give our final thoughts, kind of wrap up the film a bit. I liked the film. Um, yeah, quite a bit. Uh, I think the cinematography was excellent. Uh, I think the tone was great, but like, <laughs> it's really hard to follow. Like, yeah. So, like, once again, I kind of alluded to this earlier, but like, I didn't even know who the bad guys were until halfway through. Yeah, the movie. no, exactly. It's unclear. Like, I thought Harmonica was one of the bad guys. Me too. <laughs> he certainly didn't act like a good guy. I thought Cheyenne was one of the bad guys. He certainly didn't act like exactly. Guy. And like the first time I watched it, um, a while ago, I was like totally unclear. Like I confused Frank and Cheyenne for a while. I was like, wait, oh like, yeah, because uh, uh, everybody fucking looks the same. They're all like puffy and swollen and leather faced. It's just fucking <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, the other thing that I found confusing is like the entire character of Morton. It seems like there was like a kind of a conflict that they wanted to do between Frank and Morton in there, but like, I don't think it really hooked into anything no, it else. it kind of didn't, I don't know, he was an unnecessary character. And like, I think the thing would be a lot easier to follow and quite a bit shorter if they just cut that whole character out. Yeah, like, I guess they wanted to put like a face behind the railroad expansion, but... yeah. Like, again, I don't know. I feel like Frank could have just taken on most yeah, of that role. They could have just all wanted the land. Exactly. Yeah. They just didn't. Because it's like him. clearly, it seemed like a pretty sweet deal. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It's that it was enough. Yeah. Just like that. Yeah. He's a totally kind of unnecessary character. Yeah. That's the thing. We were we were talking about this earlier, but like, I feel like this movie is like equal parts awesome equal parts bad <laughs> yeah kind of which is why it's so polarizing like people either hate it or they love it yeah i i would say it's it's one of those movies that's like it's like a flawed masterpiece you know yeah exactly it's like like i was saying earlier like uh, i had moments where i was watching it where i was like oh my god this is a really great yeah. movie like goddamn like and then at the same time it took me five sittings to yeah get i know <laughs> Yeah, so you know, it's a difficult one, and also that again is it is, you know, old movies can also be kind of uncomfortable to watch with their like you know the way they treat women and yeah, I mean that whole it dynamic. it definitely varies on the movie, and I, I would actually say this movie was probably pretty progressive for the time. Yeah, in a lot of ways it was, but then you still have like the protagonist fucking like ripping 
the other protagonist's shirt off as an introductory scene yeah, for, like, it no is reason. But, I mean, as you you know, it is, like, theoretically, it's supposed to be a strong female lead. Yeah. Um, and but, I, I think she does do that pretty well. Yeah, yeah, they do. You can't ignore that that was an angle, but... Yeah, and I definitely think she seems to have a lot more agency in the story than, you know... A lot of other female roles at the yeah contemporary the roles. No, it's true. It did. There, you can you can give it yeah. that. But I mean, yeah, I would say a lot of this movie. I have very similar feelings to this movie as I do towards Sergio Leone himself. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's like yeah, it's so good, but also like so bad in many ways. Fucking hack, hack. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> And, like, yeah, once again, there's some pretty sloppy bits in this movie, like, because, uh, like, a lot of the important plot details, they say, like, once. Yeah. And, like, if you missed it for, like, five seconds after watching a dude get a fly sit on his face for, like, two hours, like, it's, it's easy to miss those details. I think it's a beautiful, well-made, bad movie. Okay. If that makes sense. I would sense. go the other way around and I would say it's a deeply flawed good movie. <laughs> well, you know, it's the same, different sides of the same coin. Yeah. Yeah. Because, like, I don't know. I don't think you would have to do that much to make the movie a lot better. No, it's true. Like, there isn't. Yeah. You just have to, I think, just be smarter about about how the story is told. And I think a lot of that maybe comes down to the, the dubs and the international quality. Yeah, definitely. Because, I mean, obviously, I think, uh, like, I mean, one of the things is obviously Sergio, you didn't speak English. Well, I mean, that, from what I get, he spoke a little bit, but it probably was barely, barely passable. Yeah, Mickey Knox was translating for him. Yeah, so the thing is, like, uh, I think that, Mickey Knox probably had limited uh, flexibility in what he could do to yeah. make the English version of the script. Exactly, yeah. And it, so the I'd way be he describes to it. to see if, if, if it plays a little bit better in Italian, but I honestly don't know. Yeah, yeah, it might. It might. But again, because the way it was filmed, it was like filmed already with the dubs in mind. Yeah, so, so that's weird. But like, I, I, I definitely kind of get the impression that like you know if if sergio leone and mickey knox disagreed on something in the translation i think sergio leone generally won that fight. every time yeah no without a doubt it would, yeah. yeah of course <laughs> and i mean that's his that was it makes sense that he would it's his job director makes sense but yeah. still not surprising yeah. that he did didn't cave at all yeah so i don't know anything else we want to mention um not no not really i did forget to mention when we were talking about the uh the stunts that one scene where that guy gets shot um in the bill or he's on top of the roof at the clock tower and he falls off the roof yep. through the is that john landis? Oh, yeah exactly is that john landis <laughs> i don't know it's an awesome stunt though because he it's all yeah. in the scene where he like falls through the roof it looks it looks painful yeah i'm sure it is anyway but yeah that's other other than that no i think we've We've uh we've we've done everything we need to do. All right. There you have it. All right, well it was, it was a ride. Uh, it's fun going over this movie. It was fun watching this movie, this uh this installment, and uh I suppose we will come back at you 
on the flip side with uh, a new episode of uh, Crank nice. Commentaries Podcast soon enough. Good sign-off. I like the new sign-off. Yeah, well, I don't know if it's Stan. We're experimenting. Well, well yeah, you, yeah. Episode uh, there. It's, it's, a, it's a deeply flawed masterpiece we're working on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, I'll, I'll go ahead and play us out. Do it, do it up.